So I don't want to talk too much about this because I want to cover a lot of ground tonight. We've been in a series at our Crowley campus called Jesus is Greater Than Religion. And uh, one of the things that I've noticed living in South Louisiana for a good while now is, especially in Louisiana, we are very good at routine. So for most of us, Sunday morning looks something like this. You wake up, you get ready. If you have kids, you get them all dressed. You go to church, and right after church, what do you do? You, you, you eat with your family, you barbecue, you do something like that. And for many of us, that's where church ends. It's just this thing. We check it off the list. I went to church. God's happy with me. He's pleased with me. I'll pay my dues next Sunday, right? And so we've been talking through this whole concept of what really is the gospel and what does the gospel have to offer us? Because if we can really understand what the gospel is, then we can see the church in a relationship with Jesus Christ so much more than simply just a Sunday morning. At the end of the day, Jesus wants to affect your marriage, your parenting, your workplace, your job, your neighbors. He wants to completely consume and take over your life. So here's what I want to do today, because I, I find that we're also very good at this as pastors, is we'll throw out these terms and then leave you guys in the dust just expecting that you know what it means. So I want to take about 10 minutes real quick just to give you an overview of what the gospel is, why Jesus came, and the whole purpose behind that. First thing is this, the gospel is good news. The gospel is good news that ultimately Jesus came and died for you and me and we did not deserve it. So the first thing that the gospel means for you and me is that Jesus forgives us fully. And I said this a few Sundays ago. I want you to understand this and some of you really need to understand this. Jesus does not know how to offer partial forgiveness. He only knows how to offer full forgiveness. And so you think about it this way. Sometimes when you fall short, when you sin, you feel like, okay, God kind of forgives me, but you, you say the prayer again, right? God, just in case you didn't hear me, it's the, you know, the people that raise their hand like the 10th time when Pastor Bubba or Pastor Josh says, hey, who wants to get saved today? And you're like, just in case God didn't, you know, I just want to make sure I'm, I'm safe again, right? Here's the truth. The gospel offers full forgiveness no matter what's going on in your life right now, no matter what you've done. Jesus does not know how to partially forgive something. When he went to the cross and said, it is finished, he genuinely meant it. That everything that you've done was completely eradicated. And here's the truth. What I find is if we... If we don't fall into that category, we fall into the next category, we fall into the category in order to, uh, to earn Jesus' forgiveness, I've got to do something. I've got to work. I've got to, I know God forgives me, but God, let me do my part as well, right? So it looks something like this, and, and you go to God and you ask for forgiveness for something that you've been doing over and over and over again, and finally, you know, you're sick of it. I can't do this anymore. God, please forgive me. And then you pray it again and again, and you feel like maybe I need to offset the scales a little bit with some good works, some good deeds, and then you be kind to somebody. And here's the truth. I want you to get this tonight. You cannot pay for something that's already been paid for. You cannot pay for something that's already been paid for. If Jesus already paid the debt, there's nothing that you can do to get anything on top of that. It's like you going to a restaurant and somebody picking up your tab, and then you begging the hostess saying, please let me pay for it. That'd just be stupid, right? But that's what some of us do with the gospel. Jesus, I know what you did on the cross. It's marvelous. It's great. But I don't really believe it for me fully yet. So I need to earn it a little bit. 
The second thing that the gospel does is it makes us new, completely new. Here's what religion tells you. I want to make a better version of you. I don't want to make you new. I want to make a you 2.0. The gospel says, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I want to completely kill you and I want to make a new you, a completely different version of you. And so here's what this means. Jesus is not in love with some future version of you. He's in love with the you right now. Not the person you want to be 10 years from now. Not the person that you're saying, hey, when I get my act together and when everything's working well, then God will love me. No, when you accept the gospel, he makes you new right now. The third thing is, ultimately, the gospel brings us into a relationship with Jesus. So this means that Jesus wants to walk with you. He wants to talk with you. He wants to have conversation with you. He wants to have an intimate relationship with you. He does not want to just have a Sunday morning casual relationship with you. I've used this example for years, but I can't think of a better one. I'm married. I've been married almost, wow, nine years now. And um, if I came to my wife one day and I said, hey, babe, listen, we've had a great relationship. And... uh, I want to stay married, but I'm only going to choose to talk to you once a week. Are you okay with that? Like most women would be like, you're crazy, right? But that's what a lot of us do in our relationship with Jesus. We don't know how to carry out a relationship with Jesus outside of Sunday morning. And so what do we do? We buy into these religious things. Okay, if I do this, then I get freedom. If I do this, then I can get forgiveness. If I do this and if I go to Sunday, then God's more pleased with me because I showed up at church that Sunday morning, right? And so ultimately, now that we understand the gospel and in part, I want to share something with you guys tonight that I think that a lot of us fall into, and I find myself falling into it as well. But I want to talk about self-righteousness. I want to talk about something that I think no matter if you're 18 to 90 years old, wherever you're at in the spectrum, I think all of us deal with this to some kind of degree. But here's the truth. Religion will tell you that the gospel is good news, but it's only good news as long as you keep up the good work, as long as you keep doing good things. And if you have a Bible with me, um, turn with me to Luke chapter 18, verse 9. And we're going to read a parable, and I think it's probably the best parable that's going to explain the topic that I want to talk to you guys about tonight. Now, here's the thing. Let me just give you a definition before I actually read this. Self-righteousness is having or showing strong belief that your own actions or opinions are right and other people are wrong. Anybody know somebody like this? Anybody sitting next to somebody like this? So self-righteousness, this is, what, this is what religion tells you, and this is a self-righteous, because I've done good things, because I've followed the rules, because I wasn't like everybody else, then God is more pleased with me. Or because I stayed in line and I did all the things that I needed to do, and I can say, God, look at everything that I have done, you genuinely believe that God is more impressed with your good works, and we can stick our nose up at other people that maybe haven't always followed the rules. So let's read the parable. Luke 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So here's what Jesus is about to do. He's about to blow the lid off of any confidence you have in yourself. (laughs) 
He's about to say any confidence that you find in your own abilities and your own giftings and your own self-righteousness and your own good deeds. We're about to explore some things. But before I read this, I want to kind of give you an example so you can frame this up a little bit. I have five kids um, and I'm actually going to be turning 30, which is crazy in about three weeks. Um, I have five kids. My oldest son, Eli, he is... um, He's our prideful one. I don't know how else to say it. He just is. And, and the truth is, he's really good at a lot of things. He's a very, very smart kid. Um, a whole lot smarter than I ever was. But a few years ago, when we, before we moved to Crowley, I had a, a house. We lived on Harrington Street here in Jennings and had a water pipe bust underneath my home. And so I'm out there, and Eli and I are digging this water pipe out. And the whole time I am digging this pipe, he is in my ear like, Dad, you're not doing right. Dad, you need to, you need to dig it like this. Dad, you need to do that. And I'm like, oh, my, you are five years old. And so what I did is I turned around, and I handed him the shovel, and I said, Hey, if you know what you're doing, then show Dad how to do it. And I kind of backed up, and he's like, <laughs> Seriously? And he, that within like two minutes, he's complaining, it's too hard, I can't get the shovel in the ground. And he's complaining and he's doing all these things. But here's the truth. I think that's what a lot of people look like when it comes to the relationship with Jesus. Is you think you know how to do it, but when you actually get in the driver's seat, you have no idea what you're doing. You have no clue what's going on. So, so here's the deal. It's like Christians are so good at this, right? When, you, when people are suffering, when they're going through things, and they say, man, if I was in that situation, I would never do this. Or if I was in that, let's just take a, a if my kid would have fell in the gorilla cage, <laughs> right? I would have jumped. No, you wouldn't have. That gorilla would have mauled your face off, Okay. <laughs> It's a self-righteous act that we all have of, man, if they made these decisions, but you know what? If if I was in that position, I would have never made those decisions. You know what? Financially, I can't believe they spent their money on that. I would never spend my money on that. I can't believe she married him. I would have never married a guy like that. And it's this self-righteousness that begins to take over and we genuinely begin to believe because of our goodness, because of our deeds, and because we're not like other people, we begin to have contempt towards people. And we say, man, I'm better because they're lesser. And so this is what Jesus is about to dive into. So let's pick it up in Luke 18, verse 10. So it says, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Let me put this in modern terms, okay? The Pharisee is like a pastor. He's like a leader. He's like somebody that's well-respected in the church. And the tax collector, well, he's like a tax collector, okay? So the Pharisee standing by, if you're a tax collector, I'm sorry if I just offended anybody in here. Verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. Listen to this prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing afar off, meaning he couldn't even make it into the church doors because he felt so ashamed and so guilty, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So there's two main characters in this story. There's a Pharisee who's a well-respected pastor, leader, and then there's a tax collector who is the sinner. And the Pharisee genuinely believes because he dropped some money in the offering bucket 
because he follows all the church guidelines and all the church rules, he genuinely believes that God's more pleased with him. But this sinner, this tax collector, recognizes himself. He recognizes what's really on the inside of him. And it says he beats his breast and says, God, please have mercy on me. And then this is Jesus talking, Luke 18, verse 14. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man, he's talking of the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So here's the deal. Ultimately, at the end of the day, religion is going to lead to self-righteousness. So here's what religion says. Religion says, lift yourself up. You deserve it. You've worked hard. You need to let everybody know how hard you've worked. This is what Facebook has gotten so good at, right? Man, nobody sees what I'm doing. I can just post it and hopefully I get a bunch of comments and likes and I can get approval. I can get worth. But the gospel says, make much of Jesus and Jesus will make much of you. Make much of Jesus and Jesus will make much of you. So here's what I want to do. I want to take this parable that we just read and I want to look at two unhealthy paths that religion takes us down. And then I want to look at two healthy paths that the gospel is going to take us down. So path number one, this is the path that religion takes us down. It takes us down the path of contempt. The path of contempt. And I pull this straight from verse nine where it says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So let me read the definition of what just simply what contempt means. The feeling that a person is beneath consideration, worthless, or deserves what they have coming to them. And religion is very good at this. You are better because you have truth. Here's what's wrong, and I'm just, I'm going to be brutally honest with you guys tonight. And I'm not in Crowley, so if I blow it, Pastor Josh can clean it up, okay? Um, I'm just going to share a frustration that I have with Christians. And what I find a lot of people doing today, especially with how big social media is now. This is how we act contentious. We believe because we have the truth, it is our job to be the moral police of the world. And... Because we have this great truth, we believe it's also our job to beat everybody over the head with this great truth that we have. So we invite ourselves into endless arguments on Facebook that don't really matter, right? We argue with people and say, I can't believe you're doing this. Jesus would never do this. Let me let you in on something. Lost people do lost things. People that don't know the truth don't know what to do. And let me ask you another question. When is the last time when you beat somebody up verbally with your truth, they were converted to Jesus? (laughs) Listen, I heard it said the other day, and um, we never make converts by arguing with them. We make converts by capturing their heart. We never make converts by winning arguments. And here's the truth. As Christians, we have the greatest truth in the world. But if you feel it's your job to go and tell every single person about this great truth and you do it in a demeaning way, it's always going to fall on deaf ears. If you do it with contempt in your heart, I'm better than you, so I need to tell you this truth. See, I've learned this over the, the past few years is that it doesn't matter if you have the truth. If you don't do it in love, people are never going to hear you. They're just never going to hear you. It's like when you get in that argument with your husband or your wife and they may spew the truth at you. 
but they just totally write it off because of your facial expressions and the way that you said it and the tone that you had. And you'll just argue back, even though you know they're right, but the way they responded to you, you don't want to hear it. So I'm not, should we speak the truth? Absolutely. But we've got to learn to do it in love. Because here's what the gospel does. It doesn't say there's good and bad people. There's only repentant and unrepentant people. And so here's what happens. The gospel puts everybody on the same playing field and then everybody looks strikingly similar. We're all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God and we all need a savior. The cross applies to all of us, right? Regardless of how holy you've become or whatever you've conquered through Christ, at the end of the day, we still need a Savior. I love what Romans 2.4 says. This is how we lead people to Jesus. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? So here's the deal. The same way that you want Jesus to treat you when you blow it is the same way that we should treat other people when they blow it. What we're, a lot of us are like this tax collector, right? You blow it and you say, oh my God, have mercy on me. Does anybody ever pray like, God, I blew it. Just have wrath and vengeance on me. Just destroy my life. But isn't that what we do to other people? God, I can't believe they did this. God, just blow them up. Just destroy their, they deserve it, God. But we would never pray a prayer like that on our own. I love what Romans fourteen ten says. He puts it another way. It says, why then do you judge your brother? Or why do you belittle your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. You see, the gospel puts us all on an even playing field. Where we're all going to be judged. We're all going to have to account for what we've done. And listen, there is no kind of bad and not so bad. It's just all the same. It's all the same. Self-righteousness will lead you down the miserable path of contempt. The second path that it leads you down is the path of blinding pride. The path of blinding pride. Now watch this. This is taken from verse 11 in the parable. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I get tithes of all that I give. I titled this specifically blinding pride for a reason. Because when you read this prayer out loud, you're going, is this guy serious? Is he really serious? Is he really praying a prayer where he's like, God, thank you because I give, you're pleased with me. Like, don't you see how, like, prideful that is? But I titled it Blinding Prod because when you're, when you're blind to something, you're just blind to something. He doesn't know that he's being prideful. Therefore, he's deceived into thinking that his squeaky clean lifestyle is the Savior rather than Jesus. And so here's what we buy into when many of us buy into religion. We genuinely believe because we're good, if we do good things, that's the Savior rather than the cross. So, so let me put it to you this way. Do you ever feel better about your life when life is just going well and you haven't made too many wrong decisions? And then you feel like you're the lowest scum on the planet Earth when you've made a few bad decisions? 
And you kind of ride this emotional roller coaster of God's pleased with me today, God's angry with me today, God's pleased with me today, God's angry with me today. And so you ride this roller coaster of God's pleased, now I've got to work today to earn because God's not so happy with me. See, this is the religion, this is the roller coaster that it takes us on. About six months ago, Claire and I put Eli, yet again, here's another story about Eli. We put Eli into um, a jujitsu class. And uh, so he's learning all these moves. And what was hilarious about this is the first day that he gets back from this class, I walk into the living room. He doesn't say anything to me. He's not like, hi, dad, welcome home. Nothing. He walks straight up to me and he's like, fight me. (laughs) And I'm like, what? So as the loving father that I am, I put him in a chokehold till he passed out and threw him on the couch. I'm joking. I didn't do that. Okay. No, I literally grabbed him and I chunked him on the couch. And I was like, son, it's going to be a long time before you can beat me. But he genuinely believed just because he learned a few moves, like he could take his dad. And here's the deal. This is how blind so many of us are to our sin sometimes. We genuinely believe like, God, I've been going to church. I've been changing my life. And then something happens in your life and you begin to go, God, what's going on? What's happened? Have you left me? You thought because you learned a few moves that now God's pleased with you and he's just going to honor the rest of your life. And we begin to confuse it, man, what I experienced in church or when I got saved, was that really real? Was it genuine? Listen, let me give you this little side path. Salvation is not about a ceremony and how well the ceremony went. It's not about how much you cried. It's not about any of that. If Jesus comes in and saves you, it doesn't matter how it looks. doesn't matter how much you prayed, how much you asked for forgiveness. If you were genuine in that moment, God saved you and rescued you in that moment. But I think so many of us, we, we covered this in the series. So many of us, we just get stuck at the starting line. So we get saved and then we get stuck at what we would call sanctification. Because we don't enter into community, because we don't get involved in life groups, because we don't share our life and the intimate details with other people, we get stuck and we remain baby Christians for the rest of our life. That's why at all of our campuses, we're so adamant about, man, you need to, if you're not in a life group, you need to get in one. If you're not going to a men's Bible study, you need to get in one. Because it's so important. Because ultimately, here's a deal that I've learned. As I've gotten more involved in community, people that love you will tell you in a loving way, you are prideful. You don't know what you're doing. Or this is going on. So if self-righteousness leads us down the path of contempt and blinding pride, which healthy path does the gospel lead us down? Which healthy path do the gospel lead us down? Path number one, the path of self-awareness. The path of self-awareness. And we pull this from verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I think Tim Keller hit the nail on the head when he, with this quote, he said, you are more sinful than you ever thought you were and you are more loved than you ever dreamed you could be. 
You're more sinful than you thought you ever were. And let me prove it to you. Have you ever made a decision and then asked yourself, what in the world was I just thinking? I cannot believe I just did that. I can't believe I gave into that fear. I can't believe I gave into that lust. I can't believe I gave into that anxiety. What happened? You're more sinful than you ever thought you were. You're capable of things that you, that you think you're never capable of. This is why the, the, the point before this, as I said, it, the, the religion takes us down the path of blinding pride. But see, the gospel takes us down this path of self-awareness and we begin to realize what we're really capable of and how much we really need a savior. See, when you begin to come to grips with yourself and what you're really capable of, you begin to realize your desperate, great need for an intimate relationship with Jesus. You begin to realize, man, it's not my good works and it's not how much I've performed. Like, daily I need Jesus. We were talking about this in a pastor's meeting the other day, a few weeks ago. This is a genuine statistic. About 10% of Americans read their Bible on a consistent basis. And here's the truth. If you need answers for what you're going through, you don't need kind of some self-help book at Barnes & Noble. You don't need 10 steps to a better you. This is why these kind of books are like flying off the shelves, like five-minute abs. You go and do it and you're like, you know, what in the world? It's not happening. Listen, you don't need a quick process. You need an intimate relationship with Jesus. And as you begin to get to know the God of the universe, he'll begin to point things out in your life. And as you begin to get involved in community, as iron sharpens iron, as you begin to rub shoulders with other men and women, you'll know what you need to change. You'll know what you need to repent of. I love how verse 13, though, this tax collector, he's so aware of himself of himself, it says he beats his breast. It's symbolism for saying, like, God, I, I cannot do this on my own. Like, I, I've tried, I've, I've tried the good deeds, I've tried to earn, I've tried to work. God, I just need you to have mercy on me. I need you to have grace on me. But every single day that I walk this earth, I am aware of how sinful I can be. I can't tell you how many times I've had the best intentions in the world to sit down and make a cup of coffee and sit down in my kitchen and read my Bible and put some worship music on. And I'm just, man, I'm going to have a great time with Jesus. And in the middle of that, like a kid wakes up. (laughs) Somebody spills the coffee or Peter's at my feet screaming or true story, like I was sitting down about to get ready for, uh, to, to, to read and stuff about a week ago. And I'm like, babe, um, we had our, our worship leader. You, many of you guys remember Madeline, who leads worship for us in Crowley now. She's knocking on our door. I'm like, babe, are you supposed to meet with Madeline this week? And she's like, actually, I think you're supposed to meet with her. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> And like ruined it. I feel like every time I have these good intentions, I'm about to sit down, read the Bible. Then I have like these just crazy thoughts pop in my head. I'm like, what in the world am I thinking? The story that I want to use today um, to kind of illustrate this point is, if you've read the Bible long enough, you probably know what I'm talking about. If not, I'm going to share it. But it's a story of King David. 
And let me give you a little bit of context here. There's, there's going to be two main characters in this story. There's going to be King David and then a prophet named Nathan. Okay? And now let me set up the context before all this happens, before I read the story to you. King David says he's in his, his palace one day and he's looking out this window and he sees this woman at this fountain bathing and she's naked. And he basically says to his guards, hey, bring her to me. I want her. So they bring Bathsheba, this is her name, they bring Bathsheba to David, and even some of the the servants are like, David, do you know who this is? This is Bathsheba, this is Uriah's wife. Now, Uriah is David's best, one of his best friends. Basically, David's like, I don't care, I want her. Okay? Has adultery, commits um, adultery with Bathsheba. Now, when... He realizes, okay, I've impregnated Bathsheba. I've got to cover this up. I can't have Uriah figure this out, okay? So he tells some of his commanders, he says, listen, next time you go to battle and Uriah is on the front lines and you guys go to charge, I want everybody to fall back so that he gets consumed in the battle and Uriah dies and he'll never find out about Bathsheba. So this happens. Uriah is now, David murders him. He commits adultery, and at, at this very point in the story, David is completely unrepentant of his sin. He's at a point where he's like, man, I'm David. Like, God is with me. It doesn't matter what I, what I do at this point. God loves me. He's with me. I've done all these good things. I've built up the kingdom. I have restored Israel, and all of a sudden, this is what we get. So David is unrepentant, so like God does, he sends a prophet along, and so this is where we pick it up. 2 Samuel 12, verse 1. So the Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and grew it with his children. It ate from the man's hand, his own plate, and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby's daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. So as he's telling them this, it says, David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and have no pity for him. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. You are that man. And we skip down to 2 Samuel um, chapter 12, verse 13. Now watch this. When David immediately became aware of how sinful he was... What he was capable of doing, of of committing adultery and murder. I want you to notice something that instantly happened. 2 Samuel 12 verse 13. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. And then I don't have time to read it, but this is where we get Psalms 51. Oh God, don't take your joy from me. Take not the joy of your salvation away from me. Have mercy on my soul. It is this plea that he writes. I can't believe what I've done. 
See, this is David applying the gospel to his own life. The second that he was aware of how filthy he was, he runs to the feet of Jesus and begins to repent. But this is what religion wants us to do. Don't repent because people are going to know who you really are. Don't confess. Because if you confess, it's going to be embarrassing. And you're going to have consequences. And listen, even though David confessed, he had consequences. Nathan said, one of your sons is going to die. He's going to die. He faced consequences. But directly after this, a few years after this happens, God calls David a man after his own heart. Even, even after he's committed murder and even after he's committed adultery. And so here's what the gospel does. When you understand how free you are in the gospel of Jesus, that you are fully forgiven no matter what you've done, you can run to God and repent. And that should be the first thing that we do when we recognize our sin, when it's revealed to us for the first time, that we run to the feet of Jesus. I was talking about this a few days ago, but I don't know if you realize this, but God, time is linear, right? The only way that we can understand time is past, present, and future. So, you know, we can look at it and say, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, right? We know that happened. But here's the thing. God is not restricted by a linear timeline. God actually has the ability, watch this, to remove himself from the timeline. So I want you to see how powerful the gospel actually is. And as God takes himself away from the timeline, he actually has the ability to forgive past, present, and future sins. So if you've been forgiven in Christ and God has wrapped you and clothed you in his righteousness, this is what this means. The sins you haven't committed yet, God forgives you. He forgives you. He loves you. Ephesians 1, Ephesians is one of my favorite books of the Bible, and actually in two weeks at all of our campuses, we're doing an entire summer series on the book of Ephesians. But Ephesians 1, it says this, in, in the very beginning, God knew you before the foundations of the earth, and he loved you. See, this is why so many of us, I think um, Bonhoeffer said it this way, he said, so many people have the hardest time just actually believing the simplicity of the gospel. The hardest thing that Christians have to do and wrestle with and work towards is just believing. Could it really be that good? Could it, could it really be that God is so gracious and so merciful that when he saves me, he forgives me past, present, and future? Could it really be? So the path of self-awareness. And so I believe this is what Jesus wants to speak to some of us tonight. The second the moment that you are aware of your sin, we should feel this freedom to say, you know what, I need to make it right, regardless of the consequences. Regardless of what's going to happen to me, I've got to make it right. The second path that happens is the path of humility. Verse 14, I tell you, this is Jesus speaking. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. C.S. Lewis put it this way. I think this is a very healthy take um, when we look at and we discuss humility. He said this, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less 
So some people think like humility, I've got to be humble like I'm nothing. I'm worth nothing. Like God, I'm just, I'm nothing. I'm scum on the earth. God, forgive me. It's not humility. God actually calls you, you're so valuable to him that he actually died for you. So we're not nothing. It's just humility is taking your eyes off of yourself. I mean, God gave us two commands in the New Testament, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then what? Love your neighbor as yourself. So it's this consistent reminder of, hey, it's not just about you. Humility is taking your eyes off of yourself. It's not saying, man, I'm, I'm, I'm nothing. And humility can only come by understanding who you really are apart from Christ. Like what you're capable of apart from Christ. So here's my prayer for us tonight is that God would free us from this sin of self-righteousness. Of thinking because we've done these good things or because we've kept up this front long enough that God is actually pleased with us. When we clearly read a parable that Jesus gives us, and he says, listen, it's not about how good you are. It's not about the deeds that you have. It's not about all the good things that you've done. Ultimately, at the end of the day, I just want you to feel like you can come to me and I'll give you rest wherever you're at. Whatever you're walking through. And I want you to know today, you have freedom in the gospel through Jesus Christ to admit anything that's gone on in your life and he will forgive you. This is why church is so important. This is why community and life groups and men's groups are so important. And let me encourage you in a, in, in a further step. If you go to a, you know, one of the men's Bible studies or you're in a life group somewhere, don't just show up and drink coffee and listen to the word and then go home. Like, engage. Find a guy that you can connect with and be like, dude, this is just the things in my heart that I've never told anybody and it's just wrecking me. These are the things that I just need to get off of my chest. These are the things that I just need to confess. I'll close with this. Hebrews puts it this way. Every time you go to God, he will forgive you. So there is forgiveness. But if you want healing, you go to people. You confess your sins, what? To one another. So God's forgiven you, but the reason that some of you still feel the guilt and the shame and the wounds from the past is because you have not learned the discipline of confession. So the re- like God has saved you. He has freed you. And the only reason you're hanging on to the guilt and shame is because you want to. It's because you, it's because you want to. And the way that you release yourself from that is you confess it to other people. And I believe this is why Jesus says the local church is the hope of the world. Because we've got to learn to get around other people, to confess our sins to one another, even though it may be painful, even though it may hurt, even though it may suck, even though there may be consequences. At the end of the day, I promise you, the freedom that you're going to experience is going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. So let's pray. So every head bowed, every eye closed in here. If you're in here today and you're saying, Zach, honestly, I struggle with self-righteousness. I struggle with really just thinking, man, because I've done all these things that God is more pleased with me. I struggle with contempt. I struggle with pride. If that's you today, would you just simply just raise your hand? Okay, many of you. 
I want to pray for you. Father God, I thank you for these people today. God, we know that you radically love them. God, I pray that their eyes would not be focused on how well they're excelling or how good they're becoming. But God, their eyes would be focused on an intimate, deep relationship with you. And that's what they need. God, help them to understand and see the gospel. God, I pray that today, I know we pray this all throughout the week, but God, I pray that it would truly be true for tonight. God, that we would not walk out of these doors the same. God, I pray that you would bring people across our path that we can learn to practice the art of confession. God, I pray that you would plug us in, that you would give us friendships, that you would give us people that we can connect with. God, that we would find community here. God, this would not just be a church that we attend on Sunday, but God, this would be a place, God, where you set us free. Pray that you would heal the deep wounds within our hearts, God. In Jesus' name, amen.